Father, we need your help this morning. We are weak. We are weak in our fight against sin. We don't hate sin with gospel-infused hatred. We're a little too skilled at hating it when others sin against us. We are weak at hating our sin when we sin against you. We too quickly minimize and excuse our sin. We're too busy, we say. We'll get to repenting when we get a little more breathing room, we say. But we're living in a mess of our own making. We walk into the calming waters of entertainment. We immerse ourselves into distraction. But, but some of us here were not distracted this week. We were focused. We were so sure of ourselves the past week. But our self-strength reveals so many times where we simply thought we knew better than you. And here we are, before your presence, caught in our pride. We confess that we've played games this week with our very souls. We have trifled with sin. We flirted with hell. We've mocked your spirit's many gracious, loving reminders of your presence. Would you break our proud actions in your grace? Make us hobble around on Bible crutches for the rest of our lives. Break our proud words in your mercy. Make us hallelujah stutterers. Make us Jesus thank you stammerers. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath is completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. In our weakness, we see your strength established. Your word resets our broken lives. Your presence among us reignites our dim spiritual vision. Your name silences the opposition. Your word says this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. We can only say what we've already said again. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Spirit of God, open your word to us this morning. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Psalm chapter 8. Uh, Psalm 8 ha has a place in the Psalms beyond just being number eight in the Psalter, okay? Uh, th there's a flow and structure to how this book was put together. It was thoughtful and, and intentional. We're in book one of five in the Psalms. Psalms chapter one through 41 encompass book one. 
You'll see book two begins in Psalm 42. It says it right there in your copy of God's word and so on. Now, now the five books of the Psalter alludes to the five books of the Torah, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, some scholars have tried finding connections beyond the, this allusion, this reverent head nod. Uh, but, but it's just, it's sufficient to see that David and the other psalmists, they loved the Torah. They loved the law of God. And these five books within the Psalms, which Psalms is literally the book of praises, they were written in praise of God's five book Torah, his law and promises. So, so broadly speaking, that's, that's where we're located within the Psalter. Psalms, book one, chapter eight of 41. Now let's, let's move from Psalm one to our text today, Psalm eight. Psalm one highlights the blessing of meditating on God's perfect instruction. Psalm two emphasizes God's plan. His Messiah will rule the world. The, these two Psalms, they act, they kind of act like double doors into the Psalter. They, they open to us the house of the Psalms. If we love God and we love his law and we submit to God's Messiah, we may cross the threshold into the remaining 148 rooms of this, of this psalmic palace. We're invited to bring all of our joys, hopes, fears, and longings with us in order that we will live to the praise of God's glory. Now, now if you were to just read Psalm 1 and 2, based on, on the prosperity of these passages, uh, it would seem that life is going to go well for God-fears. Uh, there, there won't be storm cloud days, right? But chapters 3 through 7, they just gut punch these hopeful expectations. Chapters 3 through 7 throw us headlong into suffering. At the outset, David runs for his life from his own son. Hope none of you this morning are on the run from your own offspring. Uh, that, would, that would not be good. So maybe, maybe you have some crazy toddlers out there. But, uh, but, but you can resonate with the universal fact that life does not always go as planned. And here we land in Psalm 8. In this Psalm, Psalm 8, in this moment, God's people do not suffer. God's people do not run for their lives. In Psalm 8, God's image bearers rule and reign through God's creation mandate. Now, Psalm 8 is surrounded by psalms of lament. What, what do we mean by, by lament? Well, there's a very helpful definition from, from a, a book on the psalms that I have, and I, I'm going to read it to you. It's a very helpful definition of biblical laments in the psalms. The laments are a category of psalms composed for times when life is not well-ordered, is disoriented. The laments typically articulate the variegated struggles of life. Interestingly, there are 64 poetic lines of lament before Psalm 8, and then after Psalm 8, there's actually 64 poetic lines of lament. Now, these, these don't match up with our our Bible verses in the English, uh, because the poetic lines don't always, they just don't always correlate in the original Hebrew language. But we see, we see this doorway to the Psalter, chapters one and two. Then we have 64 poetic lines of lament, that's chapters three through seven. We have praise, a psalm of praise, chapter eight, and then followed by 64 poetic lines of lament. What, is it, what does it mean? What does it mean? In the middle of David's disordered, disorienting experiences, 
Praise reorients his soul. Praise to God is the only way to reorient and reorder a life spinning out of control. So Christian, how how often in the chaos of your life do you recognize this? This may feel so upside down to us, but, but for the mature, seasoned Christian, they will tell you when life is disordered, when life is disorienting, when it is chaotic, you gotta do one thing. You must give praise to God. God, you, you give and you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. As I was mulling over uh, just, just the location of this psalm in my, in my mind, uh, just, just in trying to, in an effort to remember where it was in the Psalter, uh, I kept visualizing it in, in a particular way. Um, and it's not, it's not, you know, exactly how the, uh, the, the Bible relays it, but it's just, it's just helpful for me. So, so now you have to suffer it, right? Okay, so, so you see, you see uh, Psalm 1 and 2, things are good. And then you see a decline, a very rapid decline. There's still trust in God. The psalmist still hopes in God, but maybe he's not going to make it. But with Psalm 8, we see signs of life. Near death, David has a pulse. Life gets hard again. So, so if, the first, if the first 13 chapters of the Psalter indicate one thing, it's that it's normal for there to be more bad days than good ones. It is foreign to the Bible and therefore foreign to reality to think the good times will just keep rolling. The Psalter's first 13 chapters reveal the Christian experience. Step one, this is what we do. We we wake up, we wake up each morning and what do we do? We wake up spiritually disoriented and disordered. We're stressed, we're worried. You ate something weird and you had a bad dream the night before. You don't know what's going to happen today. Step two, you reach for your Psalter. And here, even even early in the morning, Christians must resist idolatry. We, We wake up each morning spiritually starving and we often reach for the square shaped idol on our nightstands. The soft soft glow of a smartphone, it just helps me wake up, we say. It's promise of something new or interesting will satisfy that, that deep longing or that craving for happiness, we think. But to our harm, we forget that spiritual cravings cannot be satisfied by gods who do not hear us. So step two, reach for the book of life. In faith, listen to the one true God who speaks to us. Step three, trying to keep it simple, right? Open it up. Open it. Open to Psalm 3 and read to Psalm 7 to ensure what? It's to ensure that you get properly disoriented. The scriptures constantly push us to realize that due to the misery of sin, we are far worse off than we think. So let the Psalter biblically disorient you. Step four, once once biblically disoriented, we pray Psalm 8 in praise to our God and King who rightly orders our disordered life. The scriptures also constantly push us to realize that that because of the life, death, and resurrection of the perfect Son of Man, we are far better off than we could possibly imagine. Step five, final, final step. We read Psalm 9 through 13 
and we experience revelatory breakthrough. Not, not new revelation, but what has already been given to us. We confidently echo Paul's, his apostolic praise paradox. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We, we see where we are located within the flow of this great book of praises. Let's now turn our attention to Psalm 8, verse 1. Psalm 8, verse 1, name above all names. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Well, first, I want to point out that Psalm 8 informs, uh, or forms what is called an inclusio. You look at verse 1 and then glance at verse 9. It's the same phrase, right? These start and finish phrases, they bracket or, or they frame in this chapter. This is an inclusio, the repetition of, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This proclamation is like a picture frame that holds the inner picture of verses 2 through 8 together. O Lord, our Lord. Do you, do you see in your Bible, it says, Lord in capital letters, L-O-R-D, all capitals. Uh, many of us know what this is for. This is shorthand for God's personal name, the name he revealed to Moses. I am that I am, or I am the one who is, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. What is the Lord? A king. Oh, Yahweh, our sovereign ruler, our king. Now, up to this point in the Psalter, it's interesting. We've seen the Lord referred to as my Lord. David says, my Lord. Here we see David use our. Because God is not the God just of David, but of Israel. David uses the personal name of God because Yahweh has personally revealed himself to Israel. He is their majestic ruler. Here's a, here's a scholar's description of that word majestic. The word majestic means mighty, and it is a royal attribute denoting God's victories. We see the word used again when Moses sings of victory over Pharaoh. The Red Sea crushes the Egyptian chariots. We see the word majestic used. Uh, the word majestic is a royal attribute denoting victories, God's might and judgment, his law, his rule over creation. So, so without the framework, without the framework of God's majesty, then this inner picture has no supporting structure. It would collapse in on itself. But God is majestic. Because of God's certain victory over evil, God's righteous judgment, his perfect law, his glorious rule, he has chosen to extend his authority to little man. So we see Psalm 8's picture placed within the hallway of the Psalter. We know where we're located. And we see Psalm 8 has given us its own framework. It tells us what it is. Let's move, let's move in a bit closer by actually moving back to that superscription and, and one of those words in there. Written by David according to the Giddeth. Now, this is an unfamiliar word. Uh, Giddeth, it, it only appears two other times in the Psalms. 
Some scholars speculate it was a type of musical instrument or, or a musical setting or mode. Some believe it refers to a wine press. God has given his small people victory over the avenger and the adversary who are now crushed under the wine press of God's wrath. Other scholars have related the word to the Philistine city of Gath, where Goliath the giant was from. Ancient translations like, like the Targum refer to the Giddith as the loot that David brought from Gath. So it's in reference to God's defeat of Goliath through David. While we don't have hard evidence for this, the setting would make quite a bit of sense. Before facing Goliath, young David says this in words of praise. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Where others fear military might, David fears God. After some convincing, some accusation by his brothers for just being unbelievably conceited, uh, little shepherd boy David is able to go into the fight. All throughout this encounter with the Philistines and Goliath in 1 Samuel, David is referenced as being young or the youngest. David, as the youngest boy on the battlefield, the youngest one out there, he praises the name of Yahweh. Little David approaches big Goliath. And out of the mouth of that battlefield baby, cries of praise were lifted to Yahweh. David proclaims to the enemies of God, he proclaims this, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And what was the outcome? Well, it's pretty obvious what should have happened. David should have died. He should have died. He's, the, he's a baby on the battlefield. There's no contest. But God victoriously, majestically displays strength through weakness, through young David. You, God, have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And you know, you know the rest. Goliath's loudmouth boasting was stilled by a stone. The, the crowd goes wild. The Philistine foes get overthrown by a mere boy. And, and thereafter, the name and fame of Yahweh spreads rapidly across the earth, like the destruction of the Egyptian army at the Red Sea long ago. Israel's God is famous for his majestic ability to do what? To establish strength through what is weak. None of the other ancient gods did this. You can look it up. They didn't do this. This was unheard of. Who is like the Lord our God? Been paying attention? None of our modern powers do this either. It's not the way the world works. I like that. North, North Korea could launch off some bottle rockets, and the U.S. is going to be going to jump up. Oh, really? Okay. Well, we're just going to do some test flights of some supersonic space jets with lasers, and you know, ne never mind us. Just just think twice before you launch something off again. Right? It's called a show of force. Because the way our upside-down world works is by displaying strength through power. Who is like the Lord, our God, who displays strength through what is weak? Look at the end of verse 1. You have set your glory above the heavens. David has exclaimed God's might and power on earth, his very majesty, and then he immediately shifts our attention. He moves our eyes to, to what? To the skies. You've set your glory above the heavens. The, the heavens here 
and most everywhere in the, in the Old Testament refer to the physical sky above, uh, not, not capital H, heaven, like the new heavens and the new earth. God has set his glory above and beyond the sky and its limits. God's glory is both among us and far above us. He is both transcendent, he is near. You set your glory above the heavens. What, what is David communicating? Well, he's telling us that we are now to direct our attention upward in anticipation of where Psalm 8 will carry us. Psalm 8, verse 2. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, now why can't we get over the feeling that this is just not the way things actually work? We see very powerful people making very world-altering decisions all the time. We have war in Ukraine. There's 12 million or more people displaced from their homes. Rising death toll. Abortion. From 1973 to 2017, instead of of 63,459,781 babies being born, over 63 million lies were told. Those babies were murdered. Violence. In Mexico, has continually risen. I saw an article on this recently. Continually risen since the start of the Mexican drug war in December 2006. Since then, over 275,000 people have been killed. And and in 2020, the Mexican government announced that that a total of 61,000 people are reported missing. It's a lot of people missing. 63,000 people, precious in God's sight, likely tortured, dead, left, left for dead. It feels like the way the world works is not the way the Bible describes it. It feels like it's not the meek and the weak who are winning, but the proud and the powerful. But but remember the end of verse 1. God's glory is set above the heavens. We read verse 2 while gazing upward at the vast glory and majesty of God. One one Hebrew scholar connects verses 1 and 2 for us. God has chosen to display his majesty by enabling weak and vulnerable mortals to play a part in carrying out his plan for his creation. God so designed his universe and his created world to operate in a certain way. The the Psalms shine light on how the world really does work in the hands of God. And they reference a promise given a a long time ago when sin first entered the world. Long ago in the garden, God made a promise to Adam and Eve that one day a baby born from their line would destroy the devil. A baby. The devil was gloriously shamed in that moment and, and one day forever will be. One day a baby would babble louder than his blasphemies. Martin Luther's best hymn, in my opinion, a mighty fortress is our God, has a great line about Satan's defeat. One little word shall fell him. A mighty fortress is our God in the hands of David is one small baby shall fell him. Early on in the biblical narrative, we see a developing power, uh, pattern. Majestic deeds are done through, through the weak. Majestic deeds are done through God's little ones, his nobodies. We see baby brother Joseph betrayed, Weak at the bottom of a well, somehow survives, then, then suffers in prison for years until one day he rises to power in order to bless the nations, both 
both Egypt and God's people. Hundreds of years later, Egypt's pride enslaved the Hebrews who had helped them. Pharaoh then had all the Israelite firstborn baby boys killed, but one baby boy escaped. Israel's future deliverer, baby Moses. He escaped in the most unsuspecting of places possible, right? Right, right onto Pharaoh's back porch. God sovereignly intervened in the face of satanic rage. Later, a, a young boy faces a giant hungry for Hebrew blood. We've just covered this. In praise of God's majesty, little David rules, big Goliath drools. You, you, you've heard the saying that goes, like father, like son. That is, a son often takes on the same attitudes and actions of his dad. Here, we see, like Satan, like Pharaoh, like Satan, like Herod. In Herod's defiant pride, he also had all the baby boys killed. All the Israelite boys, two and under, were killed. In Revelation, we see this symbolized by a dragon poised to kill the baby. Our preaching and teaching pastor recently finished a series in Revelation, and he said this, the Messiah escaped the dragon's attempts. A baby who can't change his own diaper against the machinery of Satan. How is that possible? That's the point. This text is speaking about supernatural protection. Herod tried killing the Christ, but Mary and Joseph escaped when Jesus was an infant. Back to Moses' old stomping grounds, Egypt. All right, we've, geographically, we've come full circle on this because God will not be mocked. God will not be outwitted. God will not be defeated. Yahweh, I am that I am. He he dances in circles around the devil and his plans. God is the one who mocks, outwits, and defeats. And he's chosen what is weak and foolish in the eyes of the world to do it. One theologian said of this, he said, some individuals may appear weak and vulnerable, but they have access to divine power. This is the way that God has ordered creation. So, so what seems topsy-turvy to us in God's plan is actually, it's actually right side up. You know, if, if you are here and convinced that might makes right, that strength can only come through power, then you are living life disordered. You've been duped. You are disoriented. Life lived in praise to God sets our life in order. It's all praise to God for his majestic deeds done through his little his little people. Listen to these two stories of, of praise. This is in the 1800s. Uh, when William Schaffler went to Constantinople to preach the gospel in the 1800s, he was warned by the Russian ambassador who said this, my imperial master, the czar, will never allow Protestantism to set foot in Turkey. Dr. Schaffler calmly answered him, the kingdom of Christ, who is my master, will never ask the emperor of Russia where it may set its foot. <laughs> William Schaffler's translation of the Bible into Turkish was a success. God only knows how many people came to the gospel because of his work. It's, it's a testimony of strength through weakness. All right, poetically, you can be a little crying baby and be a grown man going to the mission field to your death. In the early 1900s, the Scottish missionary Mary Slessor she went to a violent region in Africa, which they, they believed that twin babies were a curse. And so, so the babies would be born, 
they were twins, they were killed after birth. Uh, Mary was told by a tribal chief that his war-loving people would be unlikely to be helped by a woman. She, she replied this. <laughs> it's amazing. In measuring the woman's power, you have evidently forgotten to take into account the woman's God. Mary Slusser is known for having stopped the practice of infanticide on twins. Twins are now being born there. God has ordained strength to be established through weakness. This is what he does. This is who he is. One scholar said it this way, regardless of how the wicked assert themselves, they cannot outdo the evidence of God's glory. It is all around us. His glory is established and no enemy can overcome his kingdom. Let's look at verse three. Do you believe in the son of man? Verse three, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Verse, verse four, that question is often our own. As one pastor has well reflected, will, will God, God keep us in mind? Will God keep his eye on us? Before such overwhelming physical odds, such seemingly endless space and time, will God think of us and see us? Why? Why after the fall, after our betrayal of all that was good and holy, why was God mindful of man? As small as our lives may seem, they do not miss God's attention. Derek Kidner hones in on this word mindful. Mindful has a compassionately purposeful ring. Since God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object of his memory and his care. That, that word care means literally you attend to. What is the son of man that you attend to him? And it similarly implies his action as well as his concern. David's question of God's mindfulness rep represents to us uh, both, both the eternally worst of things, if you think about it, and the eternally best of things. If you are here and you find Christianity to be weak, intolerable, insufferable, if you refuse to bend the knee to the perfect son of man, then this represents the worst question in the Bible. What is man that you are mindful of him? Why is that the worst question? Well, it's because God actually knows who you are. Not, not us collectively, not just us collectively, but you specifically. In his infinite majesty, he is ever mindful of you. And, and it is a damnable offense to God's majesty that you would hear of his son's sacrifice for your sins on the cross and shrug it off. But for the one who finds they cannot, they can't just shrug off their own sin and instead must run to the Savior, here is the best question in the Bible. What is man that you are mindful of him? You mean God actually cares for me specifically? But I'm full of sin. Can God actually extend his grace to me? Now, I think we can all conceptually grasp that an infinite being, an all-powerful being can know about us 
and who we are. But it's another thing to see that he actually extends his care to you and I. We see God who is most mindful of man in this. We see God's invisible love made visible when he sent his son, the sinless son of man, to the cross. Uh, Amazing love, how could it be that you, my king, would die for me in my place? The risen Savior's name is majestic in all the earth. Why? Why is God mindful of man? Grace. Amazing grace. Well, notice in verse 4 how we move from man, man in general, all of us as humankind, to this particular son of man. This phrase son of man in verse 4 is actually, it's the exact midpoint of Psalm 8 in the original Hebrew language. God is mindful of all his image bearers, and he has shown extra attentiveness towards specific individuals in history. Uh, There's an old Jewish teaching tradition, the the Midrash, and it states that the phrase son of man traditionally has been known to refer to all the heroes of Israel's past, from Adam all the way to Moses, from Moses to David. Why why does God take the time to attend to all his people and and then to particular people in order to advance his purposes? Verses five through nine provide us with that answer. Look at verses five through nine. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse five. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion of the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, where we would expect just such high and lofty language to be centered on God, we find that God has granted mankind with this language to extend his royal rule. It's fascinating. Psalm 8 actually reverse reflects the account of creation we have in Genesis. David rearranges the order of creation to make a point. In in Genesis 1, we see man, man, male and female, created last as the pinnacle of God's creation. In Psalm 8, we see this poetic reversal where man is just below the heavens. Man is just shy of the angels. He's just a little lower than the Elohim, the heavenly beings. A literal translation would be, yet you have caused him to lack a little from the gods. Verse 5, you have crowned him with glory and honor. One one scholar explains this. Glory and honor, these words indicate strength, power, and glory associated with God as king. But God as king has seen fit to convert these royal qualities of glory and honor on human beings. Theologians have referred to this ruling by extension as as being vice-regents. A vice-regent is a person who acts in place of a ruler, governor, or a sovereign. Psalm 8 reminds us here of the Genesis summons. We are made to reflect the majestic rule of God. We are to act as God's representatives and rule over his creation well. To, To have controlling dominion so that the glory of God would cover the earth. So, so who are we as humans? We can sum it up in Psalm 8. To be human is to be made to rule for God. 
You know, our, our ability is to cure more and more diseases, to mass produce food through crops, livestock, to video chat a friend across the planet, to fly outside the planet to the moon. It, it might make it appear that man is the center of all things and all these actions. But human achievement will always be framed in by praise to God's greater majesty. Sometimes literally. We have, we have some literal examples of, of this happening. As, uh, historian Susan Gillingham writes, at the time of Apollo 11's first moon landing on July 1969, Neil Armstrong's famous phrase, that's a small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, was made, it was made in the context of Psalm 8. His co-astronaut Buzz Aldrin actually cited verses 4 through 5 to the media. A worldwide proclamation to the media. The psalm was then put into a capsule and placed in the lunar dust. The psalms have not yet traveled further than this. No matter, no matter whether mankind gives praise to God for technological marvels or cured diseases, humans will always be framed in by God's majesty. As one theologian has said, human power is always bounded and surrounded by divine praise. Doxology, this praise to God, gives dominion its context and its legitimacy. Because God alone gets the glory, any good, any lasting achievement in this life made by human hands, it will find its proper place. It is set inside the portrait of God's majesty. And the Psalms foreshadow for us the, the perfect portrait, the Son of Man who perfectly represents us to God. We will close our time with, with two applications. Application number one, apply Psalm 8 like Jesus applied it. In Matthew 21, 14, it says this, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared, prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city. Jesus saw the pattern, children praising God, enemies of God trying to stop the praise. And what happens? The praise, the praise shuts them up. The little children give praise to God's Messiah who is fulfilling God's law. They praise the son of David who is, who is the new and greater son of man who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, Jesus here and at all times is ever mindful of all children. As their creator, he created them to praise him and to spread his praise. At, at Faith Family, we strive to highly value what our Savior valued. Each Sunday, we seek to teach children in our Faith Kids ministry and our older children in our corporate gathering that they were made for praise. They were made to live for God, to know, love, trust, and obey Him. Each week, we share Christ with them, and our prayer is that each one would find forgiveness in Him. They would look to Him, and they would say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Application number two, apply Psalm 8 like the Holy Spirit applied it. Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9, 
says this, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, who, who is the him? He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Who is it? Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The way our world works is to take, it is to take perfect love and holiness as a threat and then destroy it. Before, before Christ received his resurrection crown, our, our Savior first wore the only crown that this fallen world knew to give him. It was an upside down crown. It was a crown of thorns. They mocked the Savior who said that he couldn't even save himself. But Jesus wore those, crown, those, those thorns with kingly concern for his rebellious people. He wore them so that even the mockers might be saved. He transformed man's greatest act of malevolence into crowning achievement. And what greater portrait of majesty is there? Jesus, the center of it all, the son of God, humbles himself to become man. The God-man was strong enough to become weak. He rises again. And as the perfect son of man, he is now the center of our salvation portrait, crowned with all glory and honor. And, and what does this result in? Well, God's Holy Spirit inside of us for, that, that know him, we, we cannot help but praise his name. And what do we say? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, when we look up at the sky tonight, move our souls to praise your majesty. Who are we that you are mindful of us? But we've seen the answer. The Son of Man was lifted up on the cross in order to die in our place. We have seen your strength established through weakness. For our children, we ask for the best of gifts for them, for your spirit to set praise in their hearts and on their lips. For the lost, we ask you to save them because they cannot save themselves. This morning, we, your unworthy people, believe in him who made us worthy. It is Christ who holds all authority and dominion over this world. His name is above every name. Yeah. Amen.